Hey, everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. If you've been listening alongside us in the first few episodes of 2021, you already know that we are dedicating our current season of New Way to life in the wilderness. My conversation with today's guest, Bill Brown, on wilderness and the Bible actually reminded me that while I tend to assume I can cultivate tidy little wilderness experiences that, say, last a long weekend, most of our truly fruitful wildernesses endure much, much longer, like a generation or 40 years. As the late Senator Bobby Kennedy was fond of saying, he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Those are the words of Aeschylus, by the way. The challenge for the wandering Israelites was to, on the one hand, celebrate their freedom and to sojourn through the wilderness as a time of growth and formation. The only problem is that they held on to that stubborn desire to go back to Egypt, romanticizing it being obsessed about it nostalgically, to go back to what they thought was normal. One of the privileges of hosting a podcast with such an amazing community of listeners is the chance to have long-form talks with some of my favorite professors. The Reverend Dr. Bill Brown is the William Marcellus McPheaters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, my alma mater. His books include numerous commentaries on the Psalms and other Old Testament literature, He has an abiding interest in the use of scripture in the life of the church and the world, particularly in the context of ecology and justice. In part one of our conversation, I admit all the things I'd rather pay attention to than God. We talk about how long it takes for God's people to live into God's freedom. And Bill reminds me that the real power of the wisdom corpus lies in its capacity to evoke a sense of wonder. Let's jump right in. Thank you so much for this time, Bill. I'm so excited to talk to you today. It's my delight and pleasure to talk with you, Sarah. This is a season that we're exploring the wilderness through on the New Way podcast. Uh, I I hope we can go to Job. (laughs) Absolutely. We're going to spend a lot of time on Job. I'm so excited about that. Um, Before we get to Job, though, um, I think I associate wilderness with a place that enables me to be alone with my thoughts and feelings, my deepest questions. And I'm wondering if that rings true for you when you look into Old Testament witnesses to scripture, because it strikes me that many of those experiences in the Old Testament are very communal by nature. (laughs) Nobody got away from anybody when they were out in the desert. The wilderness is such a variegated concept in the Bible. On the one hand, it is a place of danger and threat. And for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, there was a time of testing and conflict, and crisis, and failure. Hmm. On the other hand, the wilderness was also a place of formation and growth, and as you said, Sarah, kind of focusing and reorientation of one's thoughts and attitudes and conduct. And so the, the wilderness sort of carries all of that in one very messy package. Now, admittedly, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no clear sort of spirituality of the desert. Hmm. Typically, the wilderness was a place through which one passes 
as quickly as possible. But for the Israelites, that turned out to be a 40-year sojourn, as we read about it in Exodus and in Numbers. And so what was meant to be a place of quick passage turned out to be a place of temporary dwelling for one generation moving on to the next generation. Do you think, Bill, in when you consider the texts in Exodus in Numbers when the Israelites are wandering through the desert, that there's a certain point when they realize that they are in that wilderness and how long they'd be there? Well, according to the accounts, they knew that from the get-go. Once they crossed the Sea of Reeds and they realized that before them stretched the wilderness without any clear itinerary, the first thing they wanted to do was to go back to Egypt. And so they, they knew they were in a place of danger and hardship and deprivation. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge for the wandering Israelites was to accept that hardship as a consequence of their newfound freedom and to, on the one hand, celebrate their freedom and to sojourn through the wilderness as a time of growth and formation. The only problem is that they held on to that stubborn desire to go back to Egypt, romanticizing it, being obsessed about it nostalgically, to go back, to go back to what they found and thought was normal, continuing this mentality of enslavement that uh, the Exodus was supposed to break. And on to Sinai, where growth and formation as a community was to occur. I've always found it fascinating that um, all the instructions that we find in the Pentateuch occur in the wilderness, Hmm. beginning with the mountain of God, the mountain of Moses, Mount Sinai or Horeb. Uh, Once the Israelites reach the footsteps of the mountain in Exodus 19, and then they're there, they find out it's more than just a temporary way station. They're there for at least a year to learn what it means to be a just community with all the host of instructions and the Decalogue and the like that they receive, including instructions for the tabernacle, a way for God's presence to be facilitated with them as they uh, are on the move. Yeah. You know, you said something just a minute ago, Bill, that struck me, um, which is that immediately upon entering the desert almost, they yearn for, I think the the phrase that they use in English is, the flesh pots of Egypt that provision, that memory of provision, which we know from the accounts several chapters prior in the beginning of Exodus. Well, there is no account of the Israelites receiving flesh pots in Egypt. They, Their work and labor of making bricks, that was the labor that they were, Pharaoh was demanding of them, became more difficult as the Israelites grew stronger and in Pharaoh's perception. So Pharaoh said, take the straw out of the bricks make it heavier, make it heavier work. So there's nothing that we see in the accounts um, that would make us think that those who are in the wilderness would want to return to Pharaoh's world. And yet, it says something to us about, as you said, there's no itinerary in the desert or in the wilderness. They were wandering, wandering, wandering. It's said again and again. But I think as humans, we can... Many of us can maybe relate to that desire of we may wish for that lack of itinerary or the freedom or the openness of 
charting our own path, so to speak. And when we step into that space, if we are liberated to do so, it is bewildering and there's its own heaviness to it. So the wilderness in these ancient accounts is all about claiming one's freedom, Hmm. which the Israelites were not prepared to do quite yet. Wow. They were freed from enslavement, but they were not ready to claim their freedom. And as you said, to chart their own course uh, through the wilderness. They do end up at Sinai, which turns out to be quite providential. And it is a way for God to instruct the Israelites. This God who has a home on this mountain, somewhere on the, in the Sinai Peninsula, this God proves to be a wilderness God, an untamable God, who has, of course, freedom to exercise and wants to share that with God's people. But uh, what you've expressed so well, Sarah, is also the power of nostalgic obsession. The Israelites nostalgically looked back at their time of enslavement and romanticized it, looked at it through rose-colored glasses, and so they thought of flesh pots back in Egypt, which uh, they may or may not have had. They were certainly not living the life of luxury in Egypt, uh, to be sure. So that stubborn desire uh, to return to Egypt, to go back to what was normal and familiar to them, even though it was so oppressive, that I think testifies to a, a natural human instinct to remain stuck where we are, even if it is detrimental, unjust, unsafe. Yeah. There's an interesting uh, memoir that came out recently by John Hodgman. It's called Vacation Land, and he writes about nostalgia. It made me think of what you were saying is he calls it a toxic impulse, you know, this idea that the past was better, it wasn't, and that it can be recaptured. It can't. And then we remain stuck in that nostalgia and unable to go forward. But there's something about this freedom that God represents or this freedom that God's manifestation to the Hebrew people in the desert invites them into. But I'm curious to explore how that freedom is manifest in your view. Yeah. Uh, one indication of this toxicity of nostalgia is uh, when the Israelites react to the provision of manna, referred to in the Psalms as the bread of heaven. And so they receive manna as a form of provision there are different descriptions of manna, but it's a sort of a sweet wafer that resembles uh, a flaky substance. Uh, it's also likened to coriander seed. It's only temporarily good, so it does have to be eaten and consumed and not saved. The initial reaction in Exodus is, what is this? And so that's the question behind the name of manna, what is it? And then uh, they complain in numbers after having survived many years in the wilderness and receiving the Decalogue and the instructions from Sinai, and they're back out into the wilderness, wandering away for a total of 40 years. And they react to this manna after so many years. All we have to look at is this manna, as if what is it has now turned into WTF. <laughs> They're sick and tired of manna. What the hell is this, God? So, the, But it struck me, you said years of this. Yeah, they're grateful in the beginning because it helps them survive, and then they just grow sick and tired of it. And they still want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt, where they also enjoyed a whole variety of vegetables. 
So they're looking back uh, very nostalgically from whence they came. They want to go back because for them it's still normal after so many years. And one of the driving forces narratively of this whole account of the wilderness wandering is to move towards a new generation of hope. And so after so many missteps and failures and apostasy, according to the narrative, God has to rely on a new generation. The old generation has to pass away, and they pass away in the wilderness. And there are a few, of course, survivors who are to enjoy the promised land. There's Caleb and Joshua, but not Moses. Mm. In any case, the wilderness is also a time of transition from the old to the new, in this case, from the old generation to the new generation. And that new generation has to unlearn what the old generation has held dearly and to learn what God expects once they do reach the place to settle in on a more permanent basis while crossing the Jordan River. There are two crossings in the uh, wilderness account. There's the crossing of the Reed Sea in the Exodus, and there's the crossing of the Jordan into the land that was promised uh, to the Israelites from the time of Abraham. And so the wilderness is a betwixt and between liminal space and time for the Israelites that is marked with failure on the one hand and formation on the other. It's a time of growth. Mm. All the time of claiming freedom. What does freedom entail? And for the God of Sinai, freedom entails responsibility. And that's what is elucidated in painstaking detail with the Decalogue and with the Covenant Code and the stipulations for the priesthood and the instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is an interesting means of survival in the desert. It's what facilitates God's presence with this wandering people so that it gives God the freedom to, uh, if you will, move beyond Sinai and to be more present with God's people in their wanderings. Can I ask you about that Decalogue? For those who are listening and may have heard it many times, it's the Ten Commandments, which shows up. That's the ten in Decalogue that Professor Brown is referring to. You also mentioned some apostasy during the wilderness experience. And I, I one of the episodes I'm thinking about is the Golden Calf, where... Um, God's presence is manifest on this Mount Sinai that Moses can go up and be in God's presence. But no one else is able to look upon God, and Moses comes down and his face is shining with the God experience. But everybody else has just been told by Moses to uh, basically not create gods for themselves. And then Moses goes back up to talk to God and like, what do they immediately do? They create a golden calf. And I kind of like that story because I think like, it sounds out of my own experience of metallurgy or like taking their jewelry and creating this golden calf because they so desperately wanted to see God and to be near to something. But the God that they could see who was making God's self available to them was not the God that they desired. The one that they desired was one that they fashioned for themselves and... I think that's such a profound story in terms of the Lenten journey. 
I mean, I would like to talk to my friends or talk to you guys on the podcast, or of course, talk to my professor and say, like, I just love the things that God says about that I should do. But the reality is, is I want to do what I want to do. And I want to do it the way that I want to do it. And I want to be in charge. So I think there's that temptation many of us experience when we think about there's no golden calf sitting in my house, but there are a lot of like things that I pay a heck of a lot more attention to than God. Yeah, the wilderness is where all that unfolds and where all that conflict between God's will and human will take place. In fact, there's a deep irony when it comes to uh, the uh, construction of the golden calf and the construction of the tabernacle, Hmm. because both of them are constructions of their jewelry. Hmm. So they donate their metallurgy, as you say, or their jewelry, their gold earrings, to construct these idols on the one hand. So that's out of disobedience to God. On the other hand, they are instructed or invited to donate their jewelry for the construction of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle and the golden calf are two diametrically opposed construction projects that occur in the wilderness. One is a construction of, in a way, their own image and hope, this idol. And on the other hand, you have what one of my students referred to as God's mobile device. God's <laughs> mobile device is the tabernacle in which God is mobile with a mobile people. Uh, and it's a way of sustaining communion between God and God's people. Could you describe visually the tabernacle for us? Yeah, it's a, an enclosed tent-like construction which encloses the Ark of the Covenant. And what's that? It it actually functions as sort of a throne room for God. It is where God resides. But in in this case, the tabernacle is a series of enclosed spaces of sanctity in which God is able to reside with a people enthroned on this mobile device, if you will. And it's also sort of an aesthetic community art projects as well, because it involves everyone's talents, artistic and otherwise, material. So it's where beauty and holiness converge in the tabernacle. But I wanted to say one thing about the Decalogue that you talked earlier about, Sarah. It's been said, and I think it was coined by Brian McLaren, while the 10 plagues got Israel out of Egypt, it took the 10 commandments to get Egypt out of Israel. Ooh, that's good. That is to say that the Ten Commandments, although I prefer to call it the Decalogue because it's more than just a series of commandments, uh, the Decalogue is designed to break the hold of Egypt in Israel's imagination Hmm. or yearning. Uh, It is meant to break the desire to return to Egypt. It is to teach God's people the claim and responsibility of freedom. And so it is the first foray into what it, means, what it means to be a just community, from integrity and worship to being a good neighbor. It's all covered in those 10 words. Hmm. I think that's a surprising and amazing uh, way of describing the function of the Decalogue, I guess I should say, because a lot of us, whether you grew up memorizing them or seeing them, we've got to shove these into the courtrooms and the places of judgment in American culture. They carry a lot of weight, and they feel sometimes like God's just taking away all of our fun, 
Or for many of us, those are things that I would never do anyway. So they're not relevant for me. But what you the way that you just describe them to me is deeply formational and liberating. And I wondered if you would just say a little bit about some of them and how you see those creating community. So the Decalogue begins not accidentally, not with a commandment, but with sort of a background story that has led Israel to the point to be at Mount Sinai. And it is God declaring, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods except me. And so this preamble or preface with the first commandment is meant to recognize Israel's freedom and to claim that freedom is to not be subservient to other gods, to break the claim of servitude upon them and to become responsible in freedom to worship the God that has liberated them. Hmm. And so God earns God's position to be Israel's God by freeing the people. And now the people are to demonstrate their freedom by worshiping God and forming a just community. And so these 10 commandments sort of lay out a blueprint for what it means to be a good community, to be just, to be a beloved community. And it's just the beginning because you have then a whole host of other instructions that follow uh, the Decalogue. So yeah, the Decalogue is there, it says a lot. It points backwards to the liberation of a people and it points forward to what a people can be in embodying justice, uh, God's justice-oriented shalom. And not only for themselves, another part of that preface before the Decalogue is issued is that God says, you will be for me a priestly people. And that goes both ways. Uh, a priestly people is a people set off from other people, set apart to embody God's holiness, but also to be a priest to the world to be a facilitator of God's blessing to the world. I think it would be interesting to spend a little time on Job. I mean, it's a very interesting story, I think. You know, Job is doing everything, like he's kind of the annoying neighbor who's like, lawn is perfect, and is like always helping out. It's just five-star Job. He's super committed to his religious expression. He is utterly blameless. His family is like the perfect family, right? And then the ways in which the calamity befalls him, which is this argument between Hasatan and God, Hasatan says, if you allow me to inflict calamity upon Job, then I know that Job's going to deny you and he's going to get upset and frustrated with you and he's not going to act the way that he has been acting, which is blameless, right? It doesn't say that he disdains initially everyone else, right, at the very beginning, but um, he certainly has a tidy paradigm for the world. And it's like, why doesn't everyone just do the rituals and have their lawn manicured and like their children are blameless and upright and, and they haven't made any mistakes? And the rest of the world's like, let's talk about this, Job. I like to say that Job is both upright and uptight. He embodies both. <laughs> there you go. And, and in the intermediate section, the largest section in the book is a debate between him and his friends employing this common theology that if calamity befalls you, Job, obviously you deserved it. And here is the proof of why. And Job continuing to counter that and saying, I haven't done anything. Here's all the great stuff that I've been doing. I'll prove to you that I'm blameless. And Job eventually 
uh, demands an audience with God, sort of a courtroom audience, and to put God on trial. But God's response is where we're at now at this point that you mentioned, this whirlwind of wilderness. So let's take it away from there. Yeah. So uh, one word that really, I think, uh, describes Job's character in the poetic dialogues, the discourse between Job's friends and Job himself, is that he, he develops a chutzpah to the point that he thinks he can call God to court, that he can subpoena God uh, in order to uh, get this case settled for Job's vindication. He knows that he has not committed any egregious sin that would warrant such calamity. His friends think otherwise. Job thinks that God has simply made a tremendous blunder, a miscarriage of justice that God has committed. And, And so he wants to call God to account. Friends, there's your teaser. We will be back next week with more about Job. Is Job really about why bad things happen to good people? You can join me and Dr. Brown in part two of our conversation as we discuss God's love for strangeness. Yes, even your idiosyncrasies when we meet God in the whirlwind. In the meantime, you can check out one of Bill Brown's amazing books. It's called Sacred Sense, Discovering the Wonder of God's Word and World. Friends, we are especially grateful for the support of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in making this episode possible. If you are a pastor or faith leader who is looking to pivot and are actively engaged in convening a new community of faith or are serving a church undergoing transformation, then you can apply to the Certificate in Church Planting and Revitalization at PTS. Karen Rohr, our first guest on the podcast this season, heads up this program, which is all about shifting community culture and equipping adaptive leaders. The next cohort begins this coming June, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Do you want more info? Of course you do. Just visit pts.edu slash cpandr for more info. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. You can stay tuned and be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And of course, online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Martha Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time. 